I'm Cassie Hilbron, and this is the Cook It Real Good podcast, bringing you shortcuts to success in the kitchen. This week's episode will teach you how to achieve better home cooking through science. I chat with Jessica Gavin, a certified culinary scientist and certified food scientist with a passion for helping home cooks get a good dinner on the table. On her website, jessicagavin.com, she inspires her readers to embrace the science behind cooking. She's worked full-time in research and development as a nutrition formulation scientist for 12 years and has been food blogging for over seven years. In that time, she has earned an associate degree in culinary arts, had two foodie kids, James and Olivia, published her first cookbook, Easy Culinary Science for Better Cooking, and launched a recipe app. She recently quit her job to become a full-time media entrepreneur. Jessica shares some culinary science basics that will help you conquer the kitchen at home. This week's recipe of the week is my two ingredient dough. Did you know that you can make dough out of Greek yogurt and self-raising flour? It's so versatile and can be used in so many ways. Sweet rolls, savory pinwheels, pizza or garlic knots. And that's only naming a few. Get all the details for the recipe as well as all the ways you can use it through the link in my show notes, cookitrealgood.com slash 34. Now, let's dive in. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, happy to be here, Cassie. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you. Now, before we get into today's topic, can I please ask you, when was your last cooking fail? My last cooking fail was actually pretty recently. I just renovated my kitchen and I decided that I wanted to officially break in my oven by testing a new pumpkin bread recipe for the holidays. And um, so I had gotten my bread and everything ready in the oven. And after a short period of time, I started to smell some burnt Christmas spices. <sighs> and I quickly realized that after um, I went out to the store and bought an oven thermometer, that my oven was 50 degrees higher than the recipe called for. So instead of 350, it was at 400. And so I realized that you know, when I'm, you know, looking at my oven and, you know, firing it up, I have to make sure that, you know, I also look at that kitchen thermometer because if, you know, that is off 50 degrees, that's going to totally change your end product. So it's something that everyone can buy that you just put into your oven. It's very inexpensive, but it will be, you know, a lifesaver at, in the end. I really want to get one. I've, I find that every house that I ever move into, the oven is just like drastically different and that would really just help take the guesswork out. Cause yeah, usually I'm like, okay, well now I know that to cook potatoes takes 20 minutes, not 30 minutes in that one or whatever, but you're right. If you know exactly what temperature it is, that's really going to help. Yeah. And I've just learned to not rely on that dial because, you know, you set it and then the oven beeps and you're like, okay, it's ready to go. But you know, over time as you use your oven or in my instance, it's brand new, um, it can get out of calibration. So it's good to kind of 
know every time, you know, and every day, like how it's going to perform so that you get the best result. Now, I know it's going to be a good podcast episode when we've already got an awesome tip in the first like two minutes. So (laughs) I'm really, really into this. (laughs) Awesome. So Jessica, in your past life, but I guess you still are, you were a culinary scientist. Can you tell us what is culinary science and how can we use it to become a better home cook? Yes. Culinary science is this fascinating blend of food science and culinary arts, which really allows you for deeper understanding of how foods interact from a chemical, physical, and sensory perspective, and then applying that into your daily cooking and baking. You know, it's really combining that theory and practice and intuition that you gain over time to really help you gain confidence in the kitchen. And I really feel that culinary science can empower you as a cook because, you know, you start to really understand the how and whys of a recipe. And instead of just following along and This really takes that guesswork and mystery out of the process so you can truly enjoy those tasty results. Yes, I like the removing the guesswork because sometimes that's where we end up getting in trouble. So you develop a lot of recipes for your blog, jessicagavin.com. What do you consider when you're developing a recipe? I really like to think about, you know, what is that end taste and texture that I want to achieve? And knowing this, I can then figure out, you know, what essential cooking method do I actually want to use? And that's why it's really important to have that understanding of the science behind those cooking methods. And also, you know, selecting, you know, the right type of meat, cut of meat or type of vegetable is also really going to drive, you know, what cooking method you're going to choose. So let's go into those cooking methods. What are they? The three general cooking methods that I kind of like to categorize these things into is the first is dry heat. The second is moist heat cooking. And the third is a combination of both. And I'll, you know, briefly go into each of those so you could better understand um, kind of what I'm talking about here. (laughs) For uh, dry heat cooking, that's when you're going to use fat um, or hot air to actually cook the food. And what it's going to achieve is this really nice, you know, brown colors and layers of flavor. So those techniques that you would use in that particular method or category is broiling, grilling, roasting, baking, um, sauteing, pan frying, and deep frying. And so, for example, if I really want to get this nice, beautiful, crispy, golden crust on a piece of halibut, then I'll use, you know, a dry heat pan searing technique. And um, something I also wanted to bring up in terms of a concept that every one of us enjoys, but we might have not, you know, put like the term around it. And this is what creates yumminess in food. And it's called Maillard Browning. And I don't know if you've heard of it before or not, Cassie. I I actually was speaking to someone about this just the other day, but I'd never heard of it before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, from food science, it's a really important concept because Maillard Browning is this complex chemical reaction that happens when there's a presence of high dry heat. So like all those different techniques I was describing can create Maillard browning. And it's this chain reaction of flavor compounds that are created. And from a technical side, I guess there's 
you know, amino acids that react with these reducing um, sugars that are naturally found in food. And from a cook's perspective, we could actually see this transformation of the pigments changing, you know, um, that deep color, you know, that that comes on the crust, you know, when you're pan searing a steak. And then this only really happens when that surface temperature of the food reaches 300 degrees. So you're going to have to, you know, put in a temperature that's a little bit higher to have that browning to occur. So, I mean, if you think about it, like raw cookie dough, it tastes pretty good on its own, right? You're not supposed to eat it raw, but it still tastes really good. It tastes sweet. You're like, all right. But then the moment you put a tray of cookies and in the oven, you walk away and you just start to smell all of the, you know, wonderful brown notes, all the cinnamon and vanilla and spices and just, it's completely enticing. Well, that's Maillard browning and caramelization all happening together to create new aromas, flavors, and colors and textures. And like, that is why we love food is this browning reaction. So that's something that's exciting when you're using dry heat cooking. So I definitely wanted to bring that up just in case people are like, why do I love food? It's Maillard browning in most cases. <laughs> definitely makes sense. <laughs> Okay. And then the second category that I mentioned is moist heat, and that's either using water or steam. And what this is, is really water is one of those really interesting and important tools in cooking. You know, the changes in the properties of water, you know, just by manipulating temperature is amazing. I mean, you're doing techniques like poaching, simmering, boiling, steaming, or even freezing, you know, at some point to preserve foods, all with the use of water and manipulating its temperature. So if I wanted to say quickly cook um, broccoli and I want it to be bright green, fork tender, but I don't want to lose too much of its um, inherent nutrients, you know, I'll steam it, you know, in that moist heat cooking environment. And then the last um, category of cooking is a combination. So this really falls into um, braising and stewing. When you really want to convert like a tough, inexpensive cut of meat into something super tender. So what you'll usually do is you'll have one vessel to cook and then you're going to use, say, a dry heat cooking method, like say if we're going to make beef stew, we're going to cut it into cubes, we might toss it into some flour, and then we're going to heat up the oil, and that's going to be the dry heat, and that's going to create that nice brown crust and tons of flavor, even you know at the very beginning of cooking. And then when that's done, you're going to then you know add your different um, braising liquids that's going to simmer and basically break down any of that really tough connective tissue called collagen that's in the meat and then turn it into this really luscious gelatin that's rich and makes the sauce super tasty. But, you know, that all only happens if you give it a prolonged cooking time and a prolonged simmer, say between 250 and 300 degrees to be able to really melt down that connective tissue. So it needs, you know, a moderate heat for a long time. Um, and then both of that dry heat and moist heat is going to give this double power to make 
super delicious foods. That's one of my favorite things about stews and casseroles. But I I love recipes where it's like in a slow cooker and they don't braise it first. Uh, it loses so much. I mean, it might be like a little bit more of a step, but it's so worth it for that caramelization of the meat first. And then over time, you're right. One that gets to that, like fall off the bone, fork tender. Oh, <laughs> now, now I have to go and cook a stew. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> like I'll be back in about 10 hours. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree. That's even though, you know, I always keep in mind when I'm developing recipes for my readers, like, okay, how can I make it easier for you? But I think when you skip that step of that dry heat cooking, where that mallard browning is occurring, you're losing out on a ton of flavor. And yes, you could add spices and, you know, and salt and pepper later, but there's something different. There's a depth that's lost if you don't do that dry heat cooking first. So if you have time and you can do it, I wouldn't skip it. That's a great idea. And I've never really thought about the cooking methods being in these different categories, but now that you've just explained them, I'm like, light bulb, why have I never thought about this before? (laughs) It's really simple, you know, but it's essential, I think. Definitely. And so how can we use our knowledge now of those cooking methods to help us elevate our food? Well, I think that, you know, just understanding those, those basic, basic cooking methods and techniques really brings awareness on, okay, what tools and equipment am I going to grab when I'm getting ready to make this recipe? And ah, aha, I understand why I used this type of pot or this type of skillet instead of a cast iron. And then also just knowing like what ingredients to choose to really achieve that desired taste and texture outcome and understanding why you're doing these steps to, you know, make more delicious foods. Definitely. And I think that everyone's going to be going for that dry heat now. <laughs> there's a time and a place for sure (laughs) and they know about the mela and reaction they're like "Mm, i need that (laughs) yes i need it in my life (laughs) Uh, especially when you're talking about cookies before that i was like yeah we really do need to pause this podcast and you need to go and eat some food (laughs) yes let's make cookies and stew and we'll all be better off in life (laughs) exactly Now, what are some tools that say like the every person can have in the kitchen that will help us to improve our cooking today? There are two essential uh, tools that I feel every home cook must have. And the first is a digital instant read thermometer, because that's going to give you instant data without guessing on, you know, what's the internal temperature of, you know, my food so that I know when to stop cooking so that you can nail that perfect doneness, you know, for example, if that's a meat or even cakes, like I take the temperature of cakes all the time as well. And also, you know, as we're talking about the cooking methods and, you know, say if we're going to deep fry something, it's super important to have a thermometer to know what the right cooking temperature is so that it's not soggy, um, it's crisp instead. And then also, especially when you're doing moist heat cooking, you're going to want to know what's the difference between poaching temperature versus simmer versus a boil. And those all can change very quickly. So it's really important to have that thermometer so that helps guide you along your cooking journey. And then the second is a digital scale. I know a lot of 
people might not have it, but it's really affordable and it's really going to change your cooking dramatic dramatically because um, it's really handy when you're say portioning out food and you you have like say a pound or, or something of salmon and you want to cook it into, you know, cut it into appropriate portions and sizes or if you're going to especially bake and you want to have exact quantities instead of relying on volume and cup measurements, which can, you know, change on depending on the day of how you measure it and how dense your product is. So it's going to give you, you know, better consistency and more predictability in your cooking. And for me, when I develop recipes for my readers, I always measure and report grams and ounces so that they can get as close as to the same results um, as possible as I do in my own kitchen. So it's just taking out one of those elements that's that could cause failure. So definitely grab an instant read thermometer and a digital scale. They're two great options. I know that my thermometer has been a lifesaver. I don't overcook chicken anymore, but I love your idea about measuring the temperature of cake. What a great idea. Yeah, I have found in, depending on what type of cake it is, you know, between say 180 to 200 is a a good sweet spot um, to know when it's done. Because, you know, you could do the toothpick method, but it just really depends. Like if you've got chocolate chips in there, it's really hard if the chocolate melts to know if the crumb is, you know, Mm -hmm. ready. So it's just, it's just a helpful way to like also never, you know, disregard using your senses because that is the best tool is to, you know, pay attention, use your, your eyes, your, your nose, everything tasting is the best tool, but just to have that thermometer just gives you a little extra read in confidence as you're cooking. Definitely. And the digital scale, it's, that's funny. You should just talk about that because we obviously measure differently in Australia. We use grams not ounces and so when you have those recipes where things are in both measurements it's so much more helpful and I can I find that if you are measuring in cups which I do for my American audience even our cup yeah. sizes are different here in, yes. with you guys so yeah it's a good idea to have a scale that's why I you know I started doing that for my audience in you know different countries because I was like if we do have, we're using different volume measurements, like how could we ever be the same? So I, I felt to, it was really important to give both of those measurements for sure. Yeah. And there's obviously like some recipes where it actually doesn't matter um, because the, the amount is so negligible, the difference that you will get a very similar result, but there's some, you're right, where it actually has to be the exact amount and having that digital scale is going to save you a lot of heartache if it doesn't work out. Agreed. Now, do you have any advice for my listeners about becoming more confident in the kitchen? Yes, absolutely. You know, from a culinary science perspective, I really feel that science is just this framework for discovery. It doesn't need to be intimidating or scary. It really can help you. And every time you step into the kitchen, you're running your own edible experiment, which is really exciting and fun if you think about it in that way. And so just make sure, you know, as you approach your recipe, 
read the recipe instructions first, you know, ask yourself, you know, which step, what is the step trying to achieve and what cooking method, you know, am I doing? And then figure out, you know, as you go through it and you finish the recipe, you know, what, why did it work? Or why didn't it work? And if it didn't work, you know, what needed to be changed or what could you do better next time? And so really, there are no failures when you're cooking, just revelations. So over time, you know, as you start to read more about the theory and then you apply it, you know, your intuition with cooking will grow. And then as you start to trust your senses and you start to practice cooking and baking more often, then you will become a more confident cook. So just never stop being curious and learning in the kitchen. I love that. One of the things that I love most about your website, Jessica, is all in your recipes, how you do give that kind of information as to what's going on from a science background. And I know you have a lot of um, sort of like how to or why is this kind of um, posts there as well, which explain a whole host of things. Where can people find you and get that information? Uh, you can find me at my website. It's jessicagavin.com. Um, also on Facebook at Jessica Yee Gavin. And then Instagram at Jessica underscore Gavin. And at Twitter at also Jessica underscore Gavin. So I'm all over the internet. <laughs> you can find me on social media. So I'm so excited to connect with you um, and help you in any way I can. Well, that was the most interesting science lesson I've ever had. I'm definitely not asleep and I'm following it. So I really, really appreciate you giving us and that's so full of tips. I know that people will love this. So thank you so much. Thank you, Cassie. I absolutely love chatting with Jessica about all things culinary science. I must admit when the word science is thrown around, my eyes tend to glaze over. It was never my best subject at school, but chatting to Jessica has completely changed my mind and I'm endlessly fascinated by how science plays a role in our kitchens. Get all the links we discussed in today's episode at cookitrealgood.com slash 34. That's it from me. Have a great week and don't just cook, cook it real good. Bye.